The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Currently, Pakistan has a caretaker government in charge in run up to elections uh, in a few months. And this caretaker government is really, uh, you know, a sort of a, a military backed caretaker government. So this action, this deportation drive should really be understood as something that the, the military is pushing. Not, not to say that, you know, an elected government would not have necessarily done this because it would have limited, I think, political repercussions in, in, in Pakistan. Uh, given that, you know, uh, Afghans are not Pakistani citizens, they can't, these refugees wouldn't be able to have a, an impact on, on the election, right? And Pakistanis may not necessarily feel uh, very strongly about this because some of them will buy into the government's narratives of, of uh, refugees being a burden or being linked to terrorism. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for November 20th, 2023. Over the past few weeks, the country of Pakistan has pursued an aggressive wave of deportations targeting thousands of Afghan refugees, some of whom have been in Pakistan for generations. Many fear that this move will add to the already precarious and humanitarian situation facing Afghanistan. But the Taliban regime, for one, has reacted in a way that few expected. To talk through these refugee removals and the ramifications, I sat down with Madiha Afsal, a fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. We talked about the origins of the Afghan refugee population in Pakistan, how this latest action intersects with concerns over terrorism, and where the crisis may be headed next. It's the Lawfare Podcast for November 20th, Why Pakistan is Deporting Afghan Refugees, with Madiha Afsal. So Madiha, people who follow events in or relating to Afghanistan uh, and Pakistan over the last few weeks have really been taken by a pretty dramatic story, which is the forced transfer or return of many, many Afghan refugees, many of them long-term, many cases, lifelong refugees from Pakistan to Afghanistan in the past few weeks. I want to begin our conversation by digging into some of the historical context. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between these two countries, I guess, in the first place, and, and how this refugee population, this long-term refugee population over the last few decades has played into that relationship? Well, the the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan is sort of long and, and fraught. Um, if one focuses uh, in particular on the last about 45 years, you know, it's been defined in many ways by, by two wars, um, the Soviet 
Afghan war that was fought in the 1980s um, and that Pakistan, uh, with the help of the the U.S. and and Saudi Arabia, you know, played essentially a covert role in Pakistan helped train uh, and arm the Afghan Mujahideen with uh, U.S. and Saudi money uh, and arms um, that eventually defeated the the Soviets. And then, of course, uh, Pakistan was explicitly uh, a, a U.S. ally in the the war on terror. The the war in Afghanistan that was fought post 2001. With that, the the first wave of Afghan refugees came to Pakistan in 1979 uh, at the start of the Soviet-Afghan war. Uh, and Pakistan has housed millions uh, of Afghan refugees over the decades. One thing I should mention about uh, the relationship between the two countries, and, and this may come up later as well, is that uh, the border is uh, something that various Afghan governments, including the Taliban, have disputed. So the border was drawn by the British, the Durand Line, and that's something that while you know Pakistan recognizes it, there there are some disputes uh, about about what exactly is the the border. And of course, uh, along the border, uh, there are um, you know in Pakistan the. Uh, what used to be called the Northwest Frontier Province, now called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Uh, the ethnicity is, you know, they're Patans or Pashtuns. They, uh, there's a shared ethnicity. Uh, so so there's, a, there's certainly obviously cultural affinity there. So um, the, the relationship uh, between the Afghan government that preceded the current Taliban rule over over Afghanistan, the Afghan government that was the U.S.-backed Afghan government was uh, uh, especially fraught um, because uh, Pakistan was also, you know, accused of harboring the, the Taliban and of having this sort of policy of strategic depth, which basically meant that Pakistan wanted a friendly government on its, its western border in, in Afghanistan to uh, sort of counter being surrounded by unfriendly governments on both borders, the East and the West. And this, the Afghan government of Ashraf Ghani uh, and, 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 you know, preceding him, Karzai, they were considered to be friendlier towards India than towards Pakistan. And so Pakistan was accused of uh, supporting uh, the Taliban, you know, against essentially both obviously the the U.S. but uh, also the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan. Uh, of course, uh, Pakistan's relationship with the the Taliban has been more fraught since the Taliban have come into power since 2021. And again, that's something we can we can talk about. Currently, Pakistan has about four million Afghan refugees, some of whom have been in Pakistan for decades. Now there are multiple generations who have been born. In Pakistan as well. So post-1979, you know, you could have two generations, of course, uh, born born in the country. Uh, and then more recently, uh, after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August 2021, uh, about six to 700,000 um, refugees uh, had entered Pakistan. Of these 4 million total, about 1.7 million refugees are thought to be, uh, Afghan refugees are thought to be in Pakistan 
uh, without any documents, just sort of undocumented, uh, you know, or, or illegally uh, in Pakistan. And Pakistan's deportation policy that it announced at the beginning of October was said to target the undocumented uh, refugees, the illegal uh, refugees or the refugees without any documents. Um, and basically it gave them four weeks to essentially return voluntarily or face forced deportation after November 1st. So let me drill it down on that a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about what it has meant to live in Pakistan for these, particularly the long-term Afghan refugees, as you note, some of whom have been there for a generation or more. How have they integrated with Pakistani society or not? Uh, What is their kind of legal status, social status there? And how does that fit in with this documentation question? Who is documented, who isn't, and, and why? Well, Pakistan is not signatory to the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. So that means Pakistan does not have any obligation to naturalize uh, refugees. Uh, There isn't actually a path to naturalization or even full assimilation, uh, if you will, uh, of the refugees. Essentially, uh, they're able to live in Pakistan with a registration cards or proof of registration cards that allow them to work uh, in the country. And those registration cards expire every few years. And so you have to apply for renewal. That's sort of the the legal status. So it's always a little bit in limbo. There is no well-defined kind of long-term policy for the Afghan refugees. And Pakistan's argument has always been that, you know, the refugees were supposed to be in Pakistan temporarily uh, and, and, and not permanently. Over uh, over the years, Pakistan has actually had multiple what it's called repatriation. I mean, the current drive is called a deportation drive, but it's called them repatriation drives as well. The, the most recent one of uh, these repatriation drives was in 2016-2017, uh, at which point um, about 600,000 Afghans returned home um, uh, even then. So, so the idea is that the... The you know Afghan refugees are there in 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 kind of a um, you know t- more temporary status, uh, but as as I've said, some have been there for at this point more than forty four years. Um, they have married; they may have married Pakistanis, and, and, and you know multiple generations may have been born there. Even for those multiple generations, they do not have a way to get Pakistani citizenship because Pakistan's Citizenship Act doesn't provide for citizenship for those who are not the children of Pakistani parents. Um, so their status is by definition or by sort of necessity kind of more uh, temporary. You know, in terms of sort of economic kind of integration, I mean, many of them, in fact, have nothing to go back to in Afghanistan, you know, especially the ones who've lived in Pakistan for decades. They may own uh, small shops. Um, uh, you know, some may work as laborers. I mean, they're, they're sort of a gamut of professions. Uh, but obviously there are limits to the, to what they can do given their kind of tenuous and temporary 
legal status in the country. Uh, but, you know, you can, uh, in any of Pakistan's major cities, Peshawar, Karachi, Lahore, Islamabad, Rawalpindi, um, you would be hard pressed to, you know, spend a few days there and not interact with, with um, you know, Afghans who are running shops, who own shops. You know, they're very much part of the fabric of, you know, the Pakistani uh, the the market markets in Pakistani cities, for instance, you know that's uh, the one place where you would uh, certainly uh, see them, uh, and uh, you know so they are obvious uh, contributors to uh, Pakistan's economy. The kind of social integration is uh, perhaps uh, again because of their their legal status. You know, you you don't quite see a full social economic integration. However, you know, uh, especially with uh, the, the recent deportation drive, you know, I, I, I heard interviews of some uh, uh, Afghans who are being sent back who had, you know, were born and raised in Pakistan um, and, you know, going from the, the middle of Punjab, which is uh, Pakistan's largest province. They're ethnically not Punjabi. And, you know, they have thick, you know, Punjabi accent, they are indistinguishable from, from Punjabi. So, so, you know, obviously, uh, those born in, 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 in Pakistan are, are, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, they, they don't know anything about Afghanistan, you know, Pakistan is their, is their country, but even they are now being sent back. You've teed up perfectly kind of my next question, which which is, what is the relationship of these populations? Again, particularly the longer-term refugees who've been gone for for extended period or perhaps their whole lives. What is their relationship with Afghanistan at this point? Is this a case where many of these refugee groups represented whole family groups or communities that might be uh, have been uprooted in Afghanistan and therefore they have limited social ties back? Or is there a very active sort of exchange back with Afghan society, politics, economy, that would ease or hinder reintegration? What is the relationship between between these groups and, you know, Afghanistan, the country of their origin or, or their parents' origin in some cases? Well, from, again, you know, uh, it may vary. Uh, but for those who were, who came, let's say, in the, you know, in the late 70s or the early 80s, that that first wave, and who have stayed there, and who've had multiple generations born in, in Pakistan, their children, and their grandchildren, children born in Pakistan, their children and grandchildren, you know, the 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 kind of the millennial generation, and then the the the, the very young, may never have visited Afghanistan, they essentially will have no ties to Afghanistan. Their property, their lives are in Pakistan. They attended school in Pakistan, uh, either mainstream schools or, you know, schools and refugee camps. And they've, they've worked in Pakistan. And now, uh, you know, they have nothing to go back to. Essentially, they would be going back to a country that they have no socioeconomic ties to anymore. And even their familial ties, you know, basically... Uh, have essentially disappeared over over the the last four decades. The others, you know, who may have come in in more recent years, do do have ties there. Um, but this this brings us to sort of the the most recent wave that that arrived a, a little over two years ago after the August twenty twenty one takeover of 
Afghanistan by the Taliban, a lot of the the 600 to 700,000 Afghans who fled to Pakistan then also fled because of fear of persecution from from the Taliban. So they may have worked with the US-backed Afghan government or in fact, for the U.S. and they feared retribution from the Taliban. And many of them were in Pakistan as sort of in a, in a third country um, while applying for asylum to the, the West, right? So they kind of have applications pending. Uh, and about um, from, you know, sort of these rough numbers, about 200,000 of those may have been resettled in, in the West. But there are many hundreds of thousands that are still kind of in this limbo status. They would have ties, you know, to, to Afghanistan. Obviously, they, they uh, um, have come to Pakistan very recently. But, you know, it would be hard for them to go back or they fear going back uh, because of sort of the, the fear of retribution that they have from the Taliban. So, Madhya, you mentioned that there have been prior waves of efforts at repatriation campaigns uh, or similar sorts of efforts, similar to the current uh, deportation campaign that the Pakistani government has been pursuing. Can you tell us a little bit about what the political context, the motivations have been behind those prior campaigns and how they relate to this most recent action? Yeah. So I I can, I can talk about the one, you know, about uh, six, seven years ago, the 2016, 2017 one. The idea is that, you know, Afghan refugees, are, are painted by the government for political reasons, you know, as a, as a burden. Basically, they'll say, you know, they're an economic burden on Pakistan. And uh, in this, this sort of previous round, and this is happening right now as well, as linked to terrorism. And, you know, over the last um, couple of decades, of course, Pakistan and Afghanistan um, uh, have uh, traded accusations of terrorism coming at the other from the other's borders, right? So in Afghanistan, uh, the the Taliban had launched its insurgency. You know, they were thought to be living, of course, in, in, in Pakistan as they as they regrouped and launched that insurgency. But when it comes to Pakistan, there's um, uh, an allied group of the Taliban, the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan or the TTP, or also just called the Pakistani Taliban, which had sanctuary in Afghanistan and attacked Pakistan from uh, its sanctuaries in Afghanistan. That was the case before, and that is certainly actually happening right now. That the the TTP is attacking Pakistan from uh, you know its uh, sanctuaries uh, in Taliban ruled Afghanistan. So what Pakistan has done with this kind of environment of uh, a blame game of terrorism is uh, pointed the finger at Afghan refugees for increased terrorism in Pakistan, and of course. That is disingenuous. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there's no evidence, of course, whatsoever that Afghan refugees have anything to do with increased terrorism in Pakistan. But that's uh, that's sort of the, the narrative that was something that, that Pakistan used uh, in its previous repatriation drive as well. Those that that the sort of the increased economic burden and, uh, you know, refugees being responsible for increased terrorism in Pakistan is uh, also uh, the narrative that is being used uh, for this current deportation drive. And um, of course, there's there are more layers uh, to this current drive, which we can get into. But that's kind of the political narrative that the government uses to justify uh, these deportations. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ignition sequence start. Welcome to government's future frontiers. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, one on which we've come to depend for almost everything we do, space. We'll be examining the challenges, the opportunities, the pitfalls, and the benefits of all things space-related. Government's Future Frontiers from Deloitte Insights. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. 
And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Well, yeah, let's dig into that now because the Pakistani government, by my understanding, is tying this deportation effort, renamed or reframed a little bit differently, interestingly, as you noted, as a response to a specific kind of set of military threats, not a more general threat of terrorism, although it's closely related, but specific activities by certain groups within Afghanistan, or at least that's the suspicion that this is a, a response to the activities of those groups. Tell us a little bit more about what is specifically seems to be driving the most, most, most recent effort and how these different narratives of, you know, blame and association with terrorism fit into that. Sure. The, the first sort of big narrative that Pakistan, by the way, is using, you know, and, and the economic burden and, and terrorism are, uh, you know, maybe sub-narratives, if you will, is that the war has ended. Um, you know, the, the, the U.S. war in Afghanistan has ended. Uh, there's no civil war going on in Afghanistan right now. And it is time for the refugees that Pakistan has been housing to go home. So that's kind of the, the overall thrust of the, the argument. And then, you know, Pakistan, which is going through an economic crisis, as, as I said, you know, says that the Afghan refugees are, are an economic burden. The the second, the sort of the, the terrorism sort of sub-thread, if you will, is that uh, the advent of Taliban rule in Afghanistan 
has led to uh, increased terrorism within Pakistan's own borders because a terrorist group that um, is allied with the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, has been emboldened and has found logistical space as a result of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. This is a group that had uh, launched um, attacks against Pakistan, uh, you know, against Pakistani state targets, but also civilians and killed tens of thousands of Pakistani civilians between 2017 and 2015. And at that point, Pakistan took action, uh, you know, kinetic action against the group um, that was thought to have driven many of these, the, the fighters of the, the group into Afghanistan. And actually they were driven into Afghan jails. In the weeks as the Taliban was taking over Afghanistan in August 2021, these fighters were let out from from these jails. You know, they regrouped and, you know, celebrated the victory of the Afghan Taliban and then started uh, launching attacks against uh, against Pakistan once more. And in particular, Pakistani military targets along along the border. And so those attacks have increased strikingly uh, since since 2021. And it's that kind of cross-border terrorism uh, that Pakistan is quite frustrated with. Pakistan had kind of bet upon its relationship with the Taliban as uh, sort of something that it could use to ask the Taliban to put pressure on the, the Pakistani Taliban to not attack it, right? So it thought it would have leverage over the Afghan Taliban and it could get the Afghan Taliban to contain the Pakistani Taliban. But the Afghan Taliban, again, to, to no, nobody's surprise, really, except perhaps the Pakistani states, has refused to put any pressure on it, on on the Pakistani Taliban and essentially has let them do what it wants to do. That has led to kind of an unraveling of relations, um, certainly a deterioration in relations between Pakistan and the Afghan Taliban government. And, and Pakistan is frustrated with the Afghan Taliban government. And so this kind of deportation drive really comes in that context where it um, uh, the deportation drive is a reflection of its growing wariness with the Afghan Taliban government and a, a reflection of its the deterioration of the relationship between the two countries. There have been incidents of cross-border firing between the two as well along that along the Duran line along that that border and currently Pakistan has a caretaker government in charge in run up to elections uh, in a few months and this caretaker government is really uh, you know a sort of a, a military backed caretaker government so this action this deportation drive should really be understood as something that the, the military is pushing. Not not to say that, you know, an elected government would not have necessarily done this because it would have limited, I think, political repercussions in, in, in Pakistan, uh, given that, you know, uh, Afghans are not Pakistani citizens. They can't. These refugees wouldn't be able to have a, an impact on, on the election. Right. And Pakistanis may not necessarily feel uh, very strongly about this because some of them will buy into the government's narratives of, of uh, refugees being a burden or being linked to terrorism. What I can say is that uh, there are elected governments. Uh, so so uh, the, the previous government, uh, you know, run by Imran Khan, they did not engage in any deportation drives, right? And so, you know, this is not necessarily something an elected government would have done, but uh, it, it is uh, certainly action that the, the military 
wanted to push uh, and is pushing through this caretaker government. And what is the strategic objective of this? You know, you see other countries sometimes use population flows as a uh, stick in terms of imposing additional economic burden on the recipient country. In some cases, you even see them used as like, you know, a physical obstacle, uh, you know, creating border insecurity, uh, public health threats, things like that. Sometimes it's seen as more of a punitive action against the expatriate population uh, that the recipient government presumably still cares about to some extent. So sort of a retributive action. Uh, And then sometimes it's just motivated by internal factors, a desire to be done with or no longer have any sort of responsibility for this population. But it sounds like this is a much more instrumental, military-driven, strategically-driven sort of concern. What is the objective? What are they hoping this accomplishes? I think there, there are a couple of things. It plays partly domestically, right? Uh, basically, you know, you can uh, shift the blame of increased terrorism onto the the refugee issue again, which, uh, as I've mentioned, you know, doesn't make any sense. In fact, many of these refugees who are being returned are the ones who actually fled the Taliban uh, because of of a fear of uh, persecution uh, from the from the Taliban. So, you know, while disingenuous, you know, that's a narrative that that Pakistan can use to explain to its population increased terrorism. It can also pin the blame for some of its economic troubles on onto refugees. So that's sort of the the internal kind of uh, narratives. And we've already talked about this. But I think uh, the the kind of instrumentally using this or strategically using this, uh, th- there there are a couple of things. One, this is kind of a something that the government is doing to show its displeasure with the Taliban, uh, the Afghan Taliban, and and them not taking action against the TTP or the Pakistani Taliban. And so, obviously, you know, more than a million refugees uh, returning to Afghanistan is going to put pressure on an already, on a country that is already struggling, right? Afghanistan has gone through its an economic and humanitarian crisis since 2021. And uh, we, we, can, we can discuss, you know, uh, that a little bit more. About 300,000 or a little bit more in numbers of uh, Afghan refugees have essentially returned already after October uh, 3rd, which is when the the policy was announced. Basically, you know, um, some have felt pressure to return. Some have returned voluntarily so as to not be deported. And others have forcibly been returned. But uh, about 300,000 have returned. Interestingly, you know, there's some reporting that's just coming out, which is uh, showing that, you know, the Afghan Taliban have kind of set up temporary refugee um, centers, uh, camps, um, for those who are coming in and are are welcoming them, but you know, um, that's three hundred about three hundred thousand people. Uh, you know, when this number becomes uh, closer to the the one point seven, if Pakistan you know continues to follow through and actually does end up deporting um, the, the the full number of undocumented refugees, then uh, you know we'll see uh, sort of w- what happens to kind of the reception. Uh, that um, uh, you know the refugees receive in Afghanistan. So, so, so the first is kind of the deteriorating relationship with the Taliban, putting pressure on the Taliban to perhaps you know again do something different, take action against the the Pakistani Taliban. 
uh, if you will. So, so that's the first. The second, I think, is that this is also a, a signal to Western countries and to the U.S. because that sort of six to seven hundred thousand, uh, the number of refugees who had come in after August 2021, who hope to be resettled, uh, you know, in in the West, they have applications that have kind of dragged on pending applications. Some of them might be on the special immigrant visa track. Others might have other kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, asylum uh, tracks. And their uh, visa processes or asylum processes um, have uh, not been completed. And so this could be pressure uh, on those governments to speed up that, that process. In recent weeks, uh, the, there has been, uh, you know, mounting pressure on Pakistan to, especially for those uh, refugees who have a fear of retribution from the Taliban or a fear of persecution from the Taliban uh, and are in kind of this uh, on a track to receiving Western visas, there's pressure on Pakistan to sort of halt those deportations. And there is kind of this some effort at coordination between uh, the UN, HCR, uh, the Western governments and the Pakistani government to to try to to halt those deportations. So at least, you know, it could be, in fact, that the Pakistani uh, government's sort of pronouncement of this policy and, and the effort to deport um, has actually worked as a signal to uh, Western governments to at least uh, resettle some of those uh, that they had promised to resettle. So you mentioned, you've gotten this to us already, but I want to zoom in because I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the story is the response of the Taliban so far. Because at least some of the media accounts have have framed it as almost like a social or, or kind of communication strategy success for the Taliban or an effort to succeed or to achieve a success, emphasizing that there are welcoming committees with, I think, garlands at various points as described in some of the accounts I've read. There, there's a plan to provide at least some initial funding and support for resettled refugees to welcome them home, contrary to some of the fears that I'm sure no doubt they had. I think many people had that they might face a more hostile reception. How widespread or universal is this? And, and do we have a sense about what the game plan is? Where does this go in Afghanistan? Does Is this initial effort to present a warm, friendly face backed by a longer policy plan for dealing with the real challenges that come for this, from this, or is it more superficial? My, my sense is it's a, a probably a, a superficial measure, uh, but it's nevertheless striking, right? To, to sort of, again, I've seen some of those images and they're, they've they've got these stipends that they're handing out uh, to refugees as they as they come in, which is again contrary to some of the the, the fears um, for the the returnees. It may not be sustainable if more than a million uh, refugees return. So I think that's the you know sort of one factor. I, I'm not certain uh, that the Taliban would be able to sustain that. But the fact of the matter is that you know, many Afghan refugees will be returning to a country um, or or going to a country for the first time in the case of those born in in Pakistan, where their economic opportunities and their educational opportunities for both men and women 
but in particular for women, you know, strikingly so, are more limited than, than they are in Pakistan, right? So girls cannot attend school beyond grade six in Afghanistan. They cannot, women cannot work. Their ability to participate in public life is essentially entirely constrained. I mean, they can't even at this point go to public parks and beauty parlors, uh, beauty salons are being shut down. I mean, this is sort of the level of uh, uh, the the curtailment of uh, women's lives in, in Afghanistan right now. And that's in marked contrast to how uh, girls and women can live in Pakistan, right? And so, uh, especially again, for those who were born and raised in Pakistan, they, they, they would be returning to, uh, they would be going to a very different country. But even for men, you know, um, Afghanistan's economy is one um, that has been uh, sort of changed entirely, uh, obviously, by the end of the the, the U.S. war there. Um, development assistance, which was kind of responsible uh, for, for a large part of the sort of economy functioning, dried up uh, completely. All that's been going into Afghanistan uh, from the outside world is essentially humanitarian assistance, you know, and the effort is to try to get it to people and not, you know, go siphon it uh, through the, the Taliban. Um, but even that humanitarian assistance as the world's attention has been taken up by other conflicts, you know, starting with the Russian war in Ukraine, uh, humanitarian assistance uh, is falling far short of the UN's appeals for humanitarian assistance, right? So the just the amount of money flowing in Afghanistan is is a lot less, and the economic opportunities that that you know now women have none, but that men even have are a uh, lot fewer uh, in many ways than they were uh, pre. 2021. And so this is the context that that people are returning to. And of course, Afghanistan has also seen uh, a number of natural disasters, including an earthquake uh, or a set of earthquakes uh, in in uh, in recent weeks um, that have essentially flattened entire villages. And so it's a it's a tough uh, socioeconomic environment to return to, even if refugees had uh, you know, obviously some refugees had a tough uh, life in, in, in Pakistan, but they had more opportunity. Um, and for many, they've had to leave property and, um, you know, material belongings uh, behind in Pakistan. In some cases, you know, there are reports of it being snatched from them, uh, it being confiscated from them. And so um, they go to Afghanistan, essentially, you know, starting an environment of having to start from scratch in a place where there is not very much opportunity. I, I want to leave the listener with a little bit of a roadmap to think about this issue as they continue to watch developments coming out of the region. You know, what trajectory do you think this crisis is headed on in terms of the Afghan response, in terms of Pakistan's actions, future waves of deportations, you know, troubling with the humanitarian response. And what are the big indicators you're going to be looking at and tracking that you recommend we look at and track to see, you know, how big a problem, how big a situation this is becoming and where it particularly veers in particularly dangerous directions towards worse outcomes. You know, how will we know we're getting close to those to a point that the international community may, you know, feel a need to respond at some point? You know, what we have seen, we're about two weeks into the the deadline for voluntary sort of returns having expired. So the, the uh, 
refugees were given four weeks uh, in October to return voluntarily. And now uh, since November 1st, essentially Pakistan has set up dozens of actually deportation centers uh, where they can uh, detain refugees and then uh, line them up for deportation. So in some sense, the the larger waves, if Pakistan continues falling, following through on this policy, the larger waves are yet to to come. There has been pressure on on on, on Pakistan, or at least you know there are pronouncements uh, by UN, the UN, you know Human Rights Watch, you know AIDS or, aid and rights organizations, Amnesty International, to to halt or at least temporarily suspend these these deportations. Um, you know to try to especially for those who might face danger in Afghanistan to, to stop them, for those who are on a path uh, to the U.S. Uh, or other Western countries to stop them, you know, in, in general, uh, to comply with uh, sort of international law, uh, you know, to not engage in arbitrary uh, arrests uh, or detention or raids, because, uh, you know, there are some uh, with the reports, again, of some uh, Afghan refugees who are documented, who who do have registration cards, who uh, have also been rounded up. So, so there's there's a lot that has come into this umbrella, and so there, there are efforts to try to get Pakistan to, you know, uh, sort of be a little bit more sort of systematic uh, about this, and 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 you know, sort of slower <laughs> in some sense at least uh, about this, if not all this completely. And so that's, I think, what to what we should wait to to see you know does the policy change currently there's no indication of it changing if it doesn't if it doesn't change and in fact the deportations go ahead uh, as planned then you know at the both at the border with with, with Afghanistan you know on the Pakistani side but then also on the Afghan side you know we're going to see uh, a you know a humanitarian crisis because this is just a huge uh, just wave of people uh, that are going to be displaced and uh, that adds to, uh, you know, the humanitarian crisis already in Afghanistan, Pakistan as well. There's been a humanitarian uh, crisis that comes from, you know, sort of the flooding that occurred uh, last year. And so, you know, this is just an, a whole other dimension. Um, and uh, again, at, at a point where the world's attention uh, is, is not, not on this uh, part of the world and on 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 other conflicts, um, you know, this could be a crisis. So my my sense is uh, that you know just just attention on this and and uh, focus on this reporting on this might actually help matters a little bit by 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 slowing things down. And uh, you know the uh, Afghan Taliban's response to this um, again. Uh, would be interesting to see uh, and important to see. Do they sit down with Pakistan and actually carve out some sort of agreement on pressure on the Pakistani Taliban? You know, is that something that comes out of it? And does that change the policy or at least um, uh, slow down the policy um, of, of deportation? That remains to be seen. What can the U.S. do? What can the West do? Do, uh, uh, you know, international organizations like the U.N., are they able to help? You know, the UN has said that that uh, it can it stands ready to provide Pakistan and other countries housing Afghan refugees with 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 more help. And and so, is there a kind of a more systematic 
uh, way for Pakistan to deal, especially with the undocumented uh, refugees for kind of the short to medium term in a way that's different from deportations, but where it does receive some kind of economic, uh, you know, incentives to do so and some kind of logistical support to take care of refugees, you know, that that remains to be seen as well. But at this point, it's it just seems like, you know, this is the military's policy and the, the mood is to just kind of barrel ahead with it. But it could be, as I said, that these the UN's, you know, response or the, what, what the UN can offer, uh, the West uh, and the Taliban, you know, all of these factors, if there is, in fact, something that moves the, the Pakistani government and the military to, to change this policy, we might, we might in fact, see uh, a bit of a slowdown. Well, there will certainly be lots to watch for in the weeks to come. But until then, we are out of time for today. Madiha Afsal, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell and produced by Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.